Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It's a pleasure to be in conversation today with Carl Rabke. Carl is a somatic naturalist, embodiment teacher, and a tender of soul and living culture. For the last 25 years, he has practiced and taught where the streams of somatics, soul work, and a deep love of this living earth meet. He's a Feldenkrais and structural integration practitioner and loves to support people in returning to and remembering our natural inherent intelligence in movement, meditation, ritual, song, rhythm, and community. He also hosts the Embodiment Matters podcast with his beloved wife, Erin. In today's talk, we speak about the importance of movement in structural integration, the role of somatics in releasing patterns of holding or trauma, the potential of technology to reduce our sensory experience, the impact of technology on society and human attention, the role of emotions in physical responses, animism, and the potential of connecting with nature for personal growth and healing. It was a nice talk between colleagues across the Embodiverse. Anyways, enough of this intro. Let's begin our talk. Carl, I'm excited that we finally get to do this. We, we've, we've been in text for a few years almost as with everything it happens when it's meant to happen so here we are mm-hmm. glad to be here cool well, one of the things that i think i was really excited to, to have you in conversation is uh embodiment because i see us sometimes having conversations and pointing to like similar places and, and some refinement maybe or some some stuff so i'd love to kind of dive into that but maybe I know what the word animism means <laughs> in mm. the way that I understand it to mean, which might not be the same that that you are. So, do you want to do you want to um, even just kind of we can just have you vibe about what that is, and then we'll we'll just take it from there. Yeah, that sounds great. So yeah, so Carl, let's um let's learn a little bit more about you and your practice and what attracted you to get into this work and what what are you excited about right now. Oh, thanks, Nikki. Um, well, first, I'll say I'm really glad to be here with you both and riffing on somatics and embodiment and all of that with with colleagues. So I, I think um, what brought me to this work, what I hear from many people, many clients as well, was was injury and pain. I had a a thing where when I was in fifth grade, I, I fell through an auditorium ceiling about 20 feet and landed on on my left foot and you know, I just broke one bone. It was miraculous that I didn't hit the stage, you know, the seating or anything. Um, but that kind of set up a chain of of some back issues. And I played lacrosse all through college and banked myself up pretty well. And so I had surgery at, at 21. And I always thank my 21-year-old self because the moment I came out from anesthesia and there was still, you know, the pain of the surgery, but the nerve pain was gone. And I just felt this like, because it had been gradually accumulating over years and I acclimated to it and it just got worse and worse. And I had to write my thesis lying on my belly and all of that. 
in that moment, I realized if I don't have a radical change in how I was living and how I was relating to my body, that I'd be back in this same situation. And uh, so shortly after that, I moved from where I was living on Cape Cod to uh, Utah and started getting into martial arts, meditation and yoga together. And then that led to massage school and structural integration and Feldenkrais training and more things down the line. I didn't realize you were living. In, are you from the Cape originally? I grew up in New Jersey, and but my okay. mom lives on the Cape now. Yeah. Okay, uh, it's, it's funny. Is that is that partly also when you? Because I know you studied with Russell, uh, who's uh, in the Cape part of the year. Uh, is that did you? Russell came later. I'm guessing. Yeah, we met Russell Delman um, actually in Salt Lake City. We brought him here to do a, an advanced Feldenkrais training, and people for years had said like, you know, because they knew we were Feldenkrais practitioners and meditators and like, oh, do you know Russell? Have you met Russell? And then we we didn't for many years. And then uh, when eventually we met, we really clicked and we studied and did mentoring with him. And he's a exquisite being and teacher. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was one of the one of the first people when I started the podcast, I really wanted to have on. Uh, he just um, he's very inspiring very inspiring. Um, and I I, I see the core uh, similarities between the both of you, uh, which uh, which I, I mean in in, in a kind way. But yeah, so that's sort of the that's the what's we'll call it the origin story. Um, and I actually I'll, I'm not really a comic book guy, but I have this sort of humor. I have a very strange sense of humor, and so I'll say the origin story makes me laugh because in my in my mind, in some way we're kind of bizarro. And so for people who are like familiar with comic books, bizarro is like this like alternative universe. But I, I kind of see us as a way this bizarro of like, we're Rolfers, you're a gilder, we're Rolf movement people, you're a Feldenkrais practitioner. It's like these things that are more or less really the same. And yet they're like this, this mirror thing. So I, I liked hearing your origin story. Yeah, looking forward to learning more about Carl and, and, um, and, and how you got from there to to here wherever hair is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alec, I appreciated that you, how you mentioned that Feldenkrais and even martial arts is part of your your work and how that plays into structural integration because I, I just can't see how we can affect change without including movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of my my training, and I did it through the Rolf Institute, and the phase three, the last phase, I was able to do in Brazil, and it was a dual certification where it was finishing up the structural component and then the Rolf movement, where Rolf movement's kind of like, they're, they're kind of brand name to encompass somatic movement. And it's just my practice, I'm, I'm always including movement. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually really excited. I've been working. <laughs> it's kind of a long time. It's, it's been sort of like 15 years or so in the gestation stage, but uh, I've been doing this program that I'm calling embodying structural integration that's a like a a movement container for people going through the 10 series because I'm sure you both experience as as movement teachers that I could spend at least the same amount of time with a client going through a 10 series in just movement instruction. And and there's such an opportunity, I think, for different patterns, different ways of being 
to emerge through a 10 series um, when there's other things addressed. And, and because I think, I mean, I, I'm, I could geek out about the, <laughs> the brilliance of the 10 series and, and what it offers as far as a, a reset, a new beginning. Like I, I really hold it almost like a kind of initiation. Like you, you emerge a different person. And if we have a container that can actually acknowledge that and support people in laying down things that you want to lay down as you're going through a 10 series and growing and planting seeds because you have a new pattern of breath. You have a different relation to gravity. And, and in a way, like as traditional initiations have been, as long as human beings have been around, we shed what our previous incarnation is and, and emerge into something new. Like, I, so I always say people should get a 10 series, like, when you graduate high school, when you get divorced, when you stop nursing your child, when you've gone through a breakup, when you came together in a relationship, like because it is such a way to emerge into a, a new a new life, a new body. Yeah. I really, I really liked how you described that. Yeah. yeah. I would also add on. And not necessarily just before, uh, not after the divorce, but possibly even if you're in the, in the contemplation of one, because I, I know uh, I've had clients, but also the stories of people going through the 10 series and having trouble relating to their partners afterwards because they do change so radically that, um, you know, as on any awareness practice can do, that um, possibly if someone is in that stage of I'm not sure, how, that might be the catalyst to either move them one way or the other. So build on to that. Yeah, I actually remember uh, Gil Headley saying that most of the people in his first training were divorced, that they they went through a 10 series, they received it, then they were like, their marriage dissolved, and they went into the training. <laughs> and I, hey, I remember first learning the work, there was a set, there was this in, invitation to not make any major life changes in that, like to not get divorced, to not buy a house, to not move because there's so much in process and and you're in sort of this chrysalis state and to 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 wait until the process had come to completion before taking a strong direction which i, I think it's is almost a, like we need a support system for our loved ones and our our people that we return home to because yeah i just actually had a student i'm a boulder so i get to um interact quite closely with some students and um, a student had reached out to me and was like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I mean, that's a little extreme, but it was a lot of like having to figure out how to relate again with, you know, spouses, family members and things like that. And same thing, Lael King was one of my um, phase three instructors and she very much echoed what we just spoke about is like, when you return do not make big decisions because you're still processing the work. You're having to figure out how to relate to and uh, your people, and they might not necessarily know what what you're going through. And there's this whole kind of meeting together again that sometimes really works out, and then sometimes not. You're mirrored what what maybe is not working for you anymore in your life. Yeah, and I, so. I think hold true for any kind of mm -hmm. path of transformation or return, you know, that, that we're always adjusting within 
family systems and work systems and all of that. Yeah, I was going to say my first yoga training, that was like, like half the class either got divorced, quit their jobs, like came out, whatever. So there was, you know, that 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 process. I've shared this before, but I, Carl, I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, so one of the I didn't study with Russell. Uh, he's been on our show, Russell Stolzoff, but I took a class with people who had taken a class with him and they shared that he had this metaphor of the uh, when you get a, a fish from a carnival and you can't just dump it into the water, you have to like slowly bring the water together. And so he had this like metaphor of when you get home, are you still in the bag? You know, have you have you transitioned from from the bag of being in this container to shifting into the 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 other container that was there before as you transition in that? And I, I really enjoy that metaphor for it. Yeah. There's one thing you kind of mentioned was, and I don't know if, it, if it's too soon, but this movement, um, this this movement project that you've been a long time gestating in, uh, is it is it at a point where you are comfortable to it is going live and you're comfortable to? It, it's in its like kind of last refining places. So I, I would imagine like probably by March or April, I'll have it open and available for people. All right. Well, people can people who are, are are titillated at this point can find your your link. We'll have it eventually in the, in the the links, and they can learn learn more. Um, should be fine. We're going to be a race to the to the finish line. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm also doing the same thing. So, um, yeah, that'll be exciting. I think that's brilliant to to get more out there. I did um, a little bit of a, a webinar. That's actually how Andrew and I met is um, right when the pandemic happened, I did a webinar on some movement strategies that can that are in theme with the with the 10 series. And uh, I still get people reaching out to me and, and it's even like in little small pockets on the the Rolf, uh, Dr. Ida Rolf website that are still like, oh, I used that one thing that was so helpful. Thank you so much. And um, And for me, mine's a little bit more for support with clients because my clients really love homework. And now with so much being online, they're like, when are you going to have an online offering? So yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it is, like I said, it's, it's such a potent opportunity to lay down patterns. So, so we don't get pulled by the gravity of what got us into the <laughs> place where we needed a 10 series in the first place. And and I, you know, I think that it it is one of the things I teach about often is just the sense of what is our animal body like what and and I look often to children and babies and the animal world as great teachers of movement and embodied presence and and what is it about adult humans that is so different why are, why is our head so disconnected why do we not sense ourselves why do we follow someone else's some movement teachers rules about how i should move you know where like the squirrels are jumping around and they're not listening to what the pilates teachers or rolfers or anyone is saying like they just they function with skill and same same with babies and so my view of a 10 series is like we're peeling away those layers of forgetting and and helping to restore something that's that's really original. Uh, and, and I think, and 
I don't hear this talked about very often, but I think so much of the benefit of the somatics, you know, especially in kind of Western culture is, is getting back to, uh, these more original ways of, of, of being and moving like pre-industrial revolution, pre Roman colonization of Europe, you, you know, when we were in touch with land and movement like that, that I think that's, we get a taste of that when we start to release those patterns of, of holding or patterns of trauma that have been passed down. Yeah. It's, it's, um, one thing I, 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 I hear you. One thing I, I will share sometimes, and, and maybe this is the same thing and maybe not. And if not, we'll figure that out. Um, for me, a lot of times I say the whole point of, of the rolfing of whether it's a tensor or not is actually, it's not about learning. It's unlearning. Yeah. Right. So that paleo, it's all about, okay, well, we, we've learned these ways, these patterns, uh, whether we learn them or whether we grew into a system that has adopted them and we're just living within that. And that, and that's great. Like, you know, recognize there's value within that, within the certain confines of that. And yet outside of those confines, you know, getting into that, that somatic being that, that um, I'm more Heideggerian inspired. So I think of that Dasein concept of that pure beingness um, is, you know, is, is our, is our nature um, and helping people find that out. And I really loved what you said, not, not just about Pilates, because I don't want to, you know, it's as Nikki said, Pilates, I'm yoga. It's both of those. It's both of those. It's those, you know, I have those clients who come in and they say, well, my, my Pilates teacher, my yoga teacher, my gyrotonic, my blah, 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 my rolfer. And I'd say like, no, it's, it's, those are them. Like, let's find, let's find you. Let's have you find you. In fact, don't even listen to me. Like, I'm not saying anything. I'm, I'm having you kind of figure that out. Um, I actually, I, I got, I want to share this with you because a client sent me this picture today of a bumper sticker, which I don't think actually fits me so much, but hearing what you're saying, I think it fits exactly what you're saying. So it says, honk, if you're letting the soft animal of your body, love what it loves. Exactly. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she, she had perfect timing by texting me this morning because she must've yeah. known we're talking to you. Yeah. And, and that, that soft animal of your body, like one, that that soft animal is strong, you know, like cheetahs are soft, cats are soft, babies are soft, and then they go to do something and they're super strong. So that, so it's a soft, that's, that's not like a sleepy collapsed softness. And I mean, I often say that that instruction from Mary Oliver really could be an instruction for life to, to really feel the intelligence of your unique body and how you love the way you do. Yeah. And I think it's <clears throat> as a mom of kind of two young kids raising them, my kids are elementary age and, and we're in like this confliction of yes, returning to, you know, more primal, authentic movement, but we're raising, we're in a very modern world and kind of holding these two, I mean, technology and the way we're evolving, it's just going to keep on going at a rapid pace. I mean, there's, there's no return necessarily. And, and it's, for me, it's always kind of like, how do we be in a healthy relationship with it? And, 
I was hanging out with some artist friends yesterday and one of the friends is, um, I guess Apple's coming up with this new like virtual reality thing where you're like a little bit more embodied with your person. And, and, you know, we're having this conversation. I'm like, wow, that's like really, really AI. And where does that, where does that play in embodiment? But then I'm also seeing the advantage of it, of, you know, my kid's totally good and healthy, but he was in NICU for a little while. And, um, and so I had to walk through the NICU ward to see him and breastfeed and everything. And it was gut-wrenching because I was walking by children who were years old and have not left the hospital bed. And mm-hmm. while we were talking, that like came to mind. I was like, well, those little goggle things would be amazing for some of these kids who might not have a chance to get out in the world. Because I was also then using an example of a mom who is not exactly high mobile and she really wants to see the great sand dunes. And I was like racking my brain, like, how can I get her there? And it was like going to be like a long drive only for her to really step in the parking lot. And my husband, we, my kids do have one of those virtual reality goggles. And he's like, why don't we just Google the sand dunes? And then she sat down and she was having a full on immersed experience of all the, and then we went to Mesa Verde and then like all these different places. And it was, it was, I'm watching her watching and the it was like such a moving experience and then it's and there's this constant play that we're having to deal with and another kind of example which is not so great and i posted this on the instagram last night but there is a statistic i'm pulling it up that one in four children and young people use their smartphones in a way that will that is so consistent with a behavioral addiction and I see that yeah. my, I have a 10, almost 10 year old and some of these kids, again, it's like, I see why parents I'm having to think about this, like where it would be useful for safety, knowing where they are, letting the leash out a little bit, but not completely. But the flip side of like, there, it's always in their hand. It's always something they can look at. And it's it's a tricky thing. And I have again know some people who that phone is always in their hand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I would say not not just kids for sure. I mean, no. I feel grateful that I'm 51 now. And so I made it into my well into my adult life before having a personal computer or a phone or anything and had a somatic practice and had a meditation practice before all this happened. And still that sense of like, well, I should just check something Oh, you know, that. And so it is like we we're not going to be going backward from this, but I think it's it's really important to um, to look at. I, I, I think it's the probably single most drastic attentional change of our species. Like maybe when fire came could be close, but how much things have changed in the last 25 years compared to that long evolutionary arc in terms of movement habit, attentional habit, where our sense of self is located, uh, what 
draws our our interest i mean if you think of how many like in this moment we're having this connection through this device but how much of what is deemed important or sacred or worthy of our attention comes from a phone or a computer screen these days all ages and i love uh my friend Josh Shry, who does the Emerald podcast, he has this line of animism is normative consciousness. That if you look at how long human beings have been here, 99.9% of our time has been in relationship with a living world where what was sacred was the earth, the plants that our attention had to scan above us, below us, that we were able to move in relation to the ground. And like what was what was holy was all around us. And that really changes your movement patterns. If you are squatting, if you're reaching for something, if you're picking something up as living, rather than the kind of metaphor that most of us grew up with, that I'm a separate being, Humans are at the pinnacle of all species of life. The world is our dominion. The ground is dead, solid rock. Uh, that changes how we move. It changes our ability to get up and down off the ground. It changes where our head is in space because we're interested more in the human things and the human made things and the natural world is there for our entertainment or for as resources for us rather than like, oh, this tree is living and has tree intelligence. This river is alive and and is filled with river intelligence. You know, many traditions refer to stone people like our oldest, the ones that have been here the longest and that that have the greatest memory uh that really shifts how we move and participate in the world when we start to bring things alive yeah i'll, I'll add on to that too which is the the spatial awareness of of being out in a world even with a tree in the distance that you 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 have but you have this whole surrounding um i my wife loves everything very small because she's small and that's just how she likes things and when I would use her phone, which is the smallest one, I actually could feel my body like shrinking because I had to have my attention go into a, a smaller um, and, and I was, uh, you know, my my nervous system started to get uncomfortable because it was so tiny. And I've learned, especially as I've gone through different processes, somatic or embodied, that I need space <laughs> um, that, you know, even. Even in this, we're in this talk where we're looking through, I'm looking at a screen through you, but I'm really making sure that I'm also, when I'm here, I have a window over here that I keep bringing it in because otherwise I, I get pulled in and I, and I get contracted and I'm not very present, um, you know, yeah. I think that's really important, Andrew, um, because though there's a lot of momentum to be disembodied and hold forward and not paying attention when we're at a computer, when we're on a Zoom meeting, it doesn't have to be that way, that we can each be in our space and feeling what's above, behind, below us, having our peripheral vision available, having our senses alive so we can be smelling and feeling temperature and we can be interacting with this. But what usually happens if we don't have some kind of intention otherwise is that 
our sensory world just diminishes and we're in thoughts, vision, and these two-dimensional boxes. And then I find that the self-image that many modern people have is just like a Zoom screen. It's flat. It's the upper front third of our body. You know, it's like from sternum up front and and to, to sense depth, to sense inner space is is so valuable because we can we can flatten ourselves because we interact with so many other flat beings. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I do want to we, we touch into animism a bit. I want to go there. I just want to add on um, when we're doing that and we're contracting inwards into that small focal, we are constantly reaffirming to our sympathetic nervous system stay here <laughs> and when we're not able to start to regulate it we actually can keep putting ourselves into these states of sympathetic arousal and even into hypervigilance and not even recognize it because it just becomes the norm it just becomes the way of doing that um that even and i and this is something i hadn't thought about till now because I, I generally want to keep eye contact with the people but possibly i might start to occasionally even just kind of look away and still listen to you but take a moment to let the whole space come in to come back just so I can meet you better. So I, I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to thank you for that, Carl, because this conversation has, has shown me that. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. You mentioned animism. And, and when I, when I thought of that, I recalled this practice. I remember I first did it with uh, Philip Shepard, great writer and embodiment teacher. And he was in Salt Lake doing a workshop and he had us do an experiment, and you can even just imagine it, listeners, or you can do it. So if you take something and just like drop it on the ground and imagine, you know, Nikki, you're, you're a mom. <laughs> like, why do I have to pick this up? Like, who dropped this? Why am I like, you know, we have a boy, so we're always picking things up off the ground. And you go to pick something up as an object, like someone else should have picked this up. And you feel it. And usually back will tighten, like it will feel contracted when you're an object picking up an object. And then you imagine that that object is like a baby sea turtle or like a little bunny. And watch how people bend down and their spine stays long. Their neck is free. They use their hip joints. They don't just crunch in the spine. And they pick it up with such care. And, and, and that, to me, is like animism in a nutshell, that we will, without thinking about it, move with more skill and sensitivity when we feel ourselves as living presence interacting with another being of living presence. When we think of ourselves as an object relating with other objects, we will move poorly, we'll shorten. And again, it's not like we're trying to move better to pick up the turtle. It's like that just kicks in. It's life interacting with life and our embodied intelligence comes online. Well, can I, can I, I, I have a question. Sorry, actually, Nikki, do you want to go there first? Zoo, since I speak more usually. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that's all very true. And it's like we're coming, we're, it's a reminder of how much our body really wants movement and really kind of move from an organic space. I mean, it was already kind of out there in the marketplace. But yeah, again, with the pandemic and people working from home and 
not having necessarily the their office um, furniture available. That there, I mean, I've heard it with time with my clients, and I'm sure you guys did too. Is that oh, I need a stand up desk. I need um, a wobble chair. Needing all these things that 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 they are trying to get movement when they're also by the nature of their job having to sit still. And often I'm getting questions of what 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 should I get? What should I get? And I'm like. Those are nice and probably are helpful, but just get up every 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Do just move. Just don't even think about an exercise. Just kind of like wiggle a little bit and see what happens. Yeah. But um, I'm still like, I don't know. I'm in this very much conversation of in my own personal world. And while we're having this this chat, I keep on thinking about this time when we were camping last summer and we're talking and you know we right now are talking about the natural world. We're camping and beautiful night, clear sky, bunch of shooting stars are going off and we're all leaning back and joining just like, you know, being in the, the, you know, vast darkness of the universe. And then we see Elon's satellite spiral thing go by. Then we see a space station go by. And then we see like, I don't know, some other artificial light up thing go by and I was just like oh my god our cosmic world is like it's it's the technology is everywhere there is no escaping it Mm -hmm. and again like how do we be in relationship with that how do we you know still operate from a embodied somatic sense because while it's here to stay, and I do see some advantage of it, advantages of it, you know, obviously there's also like disadvantages, like all the EMFs and like, you know, part of me thinking is like, how many failed attempts to get those things up in the universe and what kind of space trash is going on and how is that impacting us? Yeah. I always think with technology, I, I come to the line from Suzuki Roshi where he said, am I having the sake or is the sake having me? And how to hold that with technology? Like, am I intentionally using this in a way that supports life? Or am I just getting pulled in by, you know, all these brilliant minds that have learned how to harvest our attention and our dopamine and, you know, all of that. So we, we all can be had by technology. And and I think it's also helpful to recognize that you know with each capacity that technology offers us, we lose our own capacity on some level. Like if you think of the synchronicities that used to happen when you'd pick some up at an airport, or you'd miss them at an airport, and something else would happen, or the sense of finding your way around a new town uh, without Google Maps. The, like we we lose that, and I, I notice that we have one car with a backup camera, and then one older Subaru without a backup camera. And when I get in the Subaru, it's like, oh, I forget that I have to like turn myself all around, and 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 that capacity gets lost. It's a little harder. Uh, like, I'm a, I'm okay to give that capacity up, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I love the. Uh, the blind spot and and that, but it it is. It's, I think it's an example of uh, 
you know, each time we can sure. lose a little bit and lose a little bit and then throw most of us out in the, in the woods and, and ask us to survive for a few days and we don't do so well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think a lot of technology, so my background was in tech and so I used to be very, very pro tech entirely and not that I'm not now, but I start to recognize technology comes not because it's better. It comes because something has been developed and somebody has said this will be helpful. Right. And, and the people who, uh, who say it actually may not be the best people to be leading the way, but for whatever reason, they currently have the power of the market. And so it just gets put in that way. And then constantly other people later are actually saying, well, you know, that wasn't actually the best. And we just keep kind of rectifying it, but that's also, that's not new. That's since the dawn of time. I mean, and that's where I'm, I'm a fan of philosophy. I think that's where good philosophy comes in is you can start to look at the principles underneath stuff and question it more. Um, but in this current age, money is what, <laughs> what, what drives the show. And so, you know, we, we do lose some of that. Um, I, I want to go back quickly to that picking up the ball, because I think this was actually really interesting because it, it, it mirrors something, but in a slightly different way of where, where I am. Uh, and maybe I'm hearing it slightly different, but I, for me, the, the aspect of picking up the ball in that way is uh, the first meeting of it is maybe upset, right? Because there's a ball there and it shouldn't be there. And why is it there? And so that the stiffness actually comes out for me of less about object to object, although that can be there, but more about upset with things being other than we want them to be. And then, so then our nerve, you know, our nervous system going into this, again, sympathetic arousal, so the back muscles get tied up and all that sort of mm -hmm. response. And yet with an embodiment tool. And so I, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast or shared this with other people. Like my wife has become one of my best teachers whenever I yell at her, because what I've realized is I'm mean, not yelling at her. I'm actually, what I'm really doing is I'm saying, I'm really upset because you're saying something that doesn't make sense to me. And once I, once I see that instead of, you know, I might tense up first, but then I say, wait a minute. And I can tense down and say, wait a minute, I'm just clearly scared. Uh, I'm clearly upset with something that doesn't make sense to me. And now I can orient. Now those back muscles can go down. And now I can orient to, I'm just an insecure person, but I see that. And I have more agency to, to be less, to have those muscles oh, relax because I see it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just say, I think when I first did the experiment, there wasn't the the anger piece. It was just object and it works in that mm -hmm. way. I, I usually add that just because it shows when we're, when, when we have a little irritation that that also shortens and, and we lose our, our movement intelligence. Well, as you know, because you live in the Cape, I'm from, from Boston area. So even as, even as I work on being more developed, anger is just naturally in my system. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you can, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still really, I still don't know enough about animism and, and it sounds, it just sounds really beautiful. Um, I know that uh, one of the things I'm most jealous about you call truthfully, I'm not a jealous person, but you did have uh, David Abrams on your, on your talk. And I, he, he is, I mean, I, I think he's, and I think he's related to animism in, in some way. He, he inspired me a lot. I actually think his book should be required reading for anybody doing any somatic work whatsoever. But please, can you share more about animism? Because it's, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I love Dave's 
work to Becoming Animal, Spell of the Sensuous. And he uh, he comes from that place that, I mean, animism, it can be, you know, a lot of anthropologists, early anthropologists would use that word to talk about indigenous culture, that they have this antiquated imagination that everything is alive. But again, like that is the arrogance of kind of dominating culture. And it really is our inheritance. Like, how could you look at the earth where all of our food and nourishment comes from, where our bodies dissolve into? Like, how could you look at that as dead? Like that, that seems like what requires imagination. So animism to me is just that it's alive. Our inner body is alive. So it's not, you know, a back pain or a herniated disc. It's not a solid thing. It's living process. And, and when we relate to an emotional state, a physical pain as a separate object, it, it stops moving. When we let it be, when we add the ing to it, when we let it be more verb-like, then it's always in play. It's always in dynamic relation, always changing. So when we, one of the things I love to teach around movement is how do we let our, our inner body be alive and specifically these inner spaces of the belly and the heart and the head and that those inner spaces are in relationship with the living world. So our movement has that quality of picking up the sea turtle, whether we're you know, picking up a toothbrush or whether we're getting in and out of a car that that the car is living, the ground is living. The when you're walking through a forest, like to to act like one of the things I'll find myself is I'll be walking and I'll just be like thinking, thinking, thinking. And then I pause. And I'm like, oh wait, there's so much here. It it'd be like the experience of if someone was just like talking on a cell phone to someone and you're sitting in the room with them like, hey, are, are you just like randomly talking on a cell phone and not seeing me? Like we can have that kind of intimacy with the the living world when we can get out of that uh, thought-based separateness. And of course, thinking is wonderful. It's great to be integrated and wonderful to have myths and imagination and Yay for thought. But often we live, as Titniat Han says, lost in thought that that is what is true. There's so much else that that can be experienced. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate I, I hadn't really heard the word animism. And so when we were sharing ideas in the email to prepare for this, I kind of did go in a rabbit hole. And um, I listened to Josh Emerald's the Emerald podcast, listened to some of his, I actually studied with his father. I did the source point training. Mm-hmm. Um, but while I was reading, I kept on ha- having these memories of moments in my life of feeling really connected into the spiritual or the energy of, of non-human things. And like one, for instance, was many and many uh, right after college so 20 something years ago i was in bali and we were in this sacral sacred cave and there was this flat stone where they would lay you know people to die and it was like really smooth and we go in there we're all holding hands 
and we end up oming. And this crazy vibration came up my legs through my body and apparently out my hands because two people who were holding my hands, I barely knew them. We kind of just, we were on this kind of trip together, but essentially strangers, they felt something come through me because we crawl out of this dark cave and I'm kind of like, oh my God, <laughs> what just happened? What, what did I just accidentally get possessed or something? But in a good way, but I was young and like just early in my, in my, you know, embodied training. And, um, but it was super wild because at two separate times, those people who are holding my hands, they're like, can you share what you were experiencing? Because something very vibrational came from you because they only felt it on the side that I was holding their hand with. And then, and then you just gave the example of food. And we all know from, I mean, this has been super mainstream of like eating our live food versus our dead food. And like, it doesn't take, I mean, I think most people, how deep in their embodiment journey can kind of speak to, wow, I do feel better when I'm eating more alive food than, than like cardboard food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just, yeah, it's such a great invitation to come back and, and relate to, to our world of an energetic component and it doesn't have to be all woohoo and far out ideas, especially as we are evolving into more of this plasticky intel, you know, artificial intelligence and technology world that there's still a lot of ways we can relate mm -hmm. to the living. Yeah. That's not a pulse. Yeah. One of my favorite somatic images, this one came from, Russell Delman. And uh, again, listeners, you can experience this if you're sitting or standing, is to imagine that the ground is like a giant elephant or a giant whale, like this being that just loves you so much. And the difference in how your footsteps would be, how your sit bones would receive the support of the chair, thinking that what's under you is not only alive, but but loves you. And you could really say that with, with the earth, like their gravity is, is an attraction between bodies, like our bodies right now are being attracted to the center of the earth. So we're not spinning off in the in the rotation. And when we can have a sense of uh, this, this being under here cares for me, loves my weight. Um, there's a beautiful line from Robin Wall Kimmerer, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, where she says something to the effect of, you know, when we love the earth, it evokes a sense like we want to protect and care for it and tend to it. But when we feel the earth loves us in return, it turns it from a one-way street into a sacred bond that we can have this sense. And, and this is, again, has been there for much of human history, this sacred gratitude for ground, where our nourishment comes from, where our waste goes into, what our bodies would feed in our leaving them. But 
that's lost for many of us now. And it really changes our movement with the ground. It's always there and how you reach for something and how you walk. It's, uh, it's drastically different. Like I often consider the place where we're interacting with the ground being like a joint in our larger bodies. We've got this big body and then this little articulation that comes right now. It's a little bit in my feet, a little bit under my pelvis, but what if that were always present in my running, in my sitting, in my walking, this way that the larger body is interacting with this little body. Yeah, I mean, I already changed how I was sitting just by bringing the um, the whale. Uh, the elephant didn't actually work too well for me. <laughs> I started yeah. to get bucked off, but the whale, uh, <laughs> the whale... Usually- Large, large one, like hundred yeah. times the size. <laughs> yeah, but but it, it's interesting, and I, it it actually the room that I'm in became. I had a different relation with the room I became in. Uh, yeah, I mean, and and that was really so. I appreciate that. I'm going to have to play with that a bit. And and there was something I was going to say before, which I think will also tie in uh, about this. How you're saying, you know, thinking is good, and and I think that this is that so many people, especially as they get into it, they get stuck in one camp. They, they they discover the somatic or the animus and say no no this is this is it this is you know and they miss out that you need both <laughs> but it's about where where in that are we uh, you know are we too much to one side well now we've lost the other and then we're actually in a way trying to not be there which is still just thought um, you know or have we have we lost that for whatever reason and now we're we're in this cognitive cycle um, that we can't even see and. and you know, there isn't, you know, just like there's no answer to the technology stuff we said, there's no real answer for this because there it's 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 so personal and it's so relational to where the people are. But I, I do want to just highlight that you as you're saying and build on that, yeah, thinking is thinking is great until it isn't. And embodiment is great. But if you're if you're walking down the street and just feeling the the um you know, the elephant or the whale and, and you don't pay attention, their cars coming down, not so good. <laughs> Yeah, and anything in isolation is going to be limited. And that's like, again, these three centers can be so helpful for, you know, integrating our, the intelligence of our heart, the intelligence of our guts and our bones, the intelligence of our thinking mind. And, uh, you know, as many systems have that energetic central channel uh, that affects them all, which I think is intimately connected to, you know, this great, somatic mystery of the line that Ida was working with. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking, um, this just came to mind when I was reading Michael Pollan's how to change your mind. Um, one of the common denominators I saw from all of the different healings around, you know, fear of imminent death coming cancers, PTSD, addiction, people describe this sense of feeling the aliveness of the world, that that the plants, the trees, the space, this everything was was alive in it, and it helped people grow and end that we are not separate from that. Because one of the core wounds of many modern people is this sense of a lack of belonging, not belonging to community, not having a food culture, not having connection to place and rituals and feeling separate. And when things are alive, 
we're enmeshed, we're entwined in that living web. So the natural world is not something that you drive to. Like we are the natural world. We are part of this ecosystem. Our breath is exchanging with the green world around us. And yet we hold ourselves as like, oh, I'm in my house now. I need to I need to go out into nature. Um, but I, I thought it was really fascinating across all of the different plant medicines that were described in that book. That was one thing that they all described is this this livingness. Yeah, I think you might appreciate this. I work in the in the Middle East a lot, and people one of the biggest complaints people will say is like, "But there's just no nature here." And I say, "You've got the desert." <laughs> oh, but that's not the nature I want. I say, "Well, sure, sure, but but you have nature, and and you have a human being. You have a dog. You have goats. This is nature. Camels. This is nature." But we get so wrapped up into these ideas of other of of what we don't have of what we want. Uh, yeah. Without recognizing this, there's so much there. There's so much there. Yeah. I like that, how you mentioned that, because um, my husband loves the desert. I mean, he loves, like, but I'm like, and it's fine. He's actually originally from the East Coast and he's an archaeologist. So I think there's, he loves, I think a lot of his, uh, he finds archaeology interests in, in the desert and things like that. But I I don't love the desert. I mean, I don't mind it if I can get in there. But I always like I come back to like I'm like I'm pretty much Swedish. I'm sensitive to the sun. I don't really like to be hot. And so like, yeah, my I'm like probably one of the Middle East people who are like, I want lush green trees, water, <laughs> like shade, <laughs> nature. And so it comes, I mean, and I'm using that how innately as we've evolved we've like we have choose and chosen preferences and that's and preferences is part of evolution and i'm reading this cool book with my kid it's about birds but it's like from andrew you'd like it because it's very about philosophy too and it's it's fascinating to learn about how evolutionary changes have and we all know this like certain demands happen we change but looking at it from a bird's perspective and like it's just so cool because like some birds have big giant wings but they don't fly anymore because they're such a massive like body and um so while I read it I'm I'm always like it kind of in my mind I'm it's threading structural integrative principles of how the human body have changed by preferences. Some mm -hmm. preferences are super serving and some, well, again, when my basic training, one of the things that my biggest kind of takeaway was often the things that serve us are also very limiting. And we can think about that from very serving to have a, a, a job that keeps you at the desk. But for some, it's very limiting because they're getting aches and pains in their backs and um, it doesn't serve them from the long haul. So like, how do, how do we work with this? And again, I'm a big, I'm also a gyrotonic gyrokinesis instructor. And a lot of the principles in that work is like working with contrast mm -hmm. and, and finding in the expansion of contrast, how do you find flow and articulation? Yeah. 
Yeah, I love uh, Feldenkrais had a, a definition of posture, optimal posture being the ability to move in any direction with the least amount of preparation. So like our most of our neutral now is so biased in the direction of sitting and sharp focus on something in front of us that to jump back or to side bend, you know, that it takes some adjustment to interact with the rest of the three-dimensional world because our neutral has such a heavy leaning in shortened psoas, head forward, you know, shortened front line of the body. And I, again, I, I love the way that gyro work really opens up to that, you know, the spheres and possible interactions in the space around. Well, Carl, I, I have a sense that we could talk a long time. And maybe if we're lucky, we will have another call and talk some more. But there are some time constraints, both for us, but also uh, people like the hour talks. When we have like the two hour talks, sometimes they say, hey, yeah, it's a little much. Although, I, I, I mean, part of me, part of the podcast is really, I'll be selfishly said, is for me to be in conversation with people. Um, so I'm partly okay with that. But again, finding the balance between my needs and the preferences of others. Is there... Is there anything that, that with the sort of remaining time that you feel like, oh, I just really want to need to get this say, do you feel like we've done all right? Yeah, I feel like we've hit some some rich topics for people to chew and reflect on. Yeah. In some ways, it's, we've done so much and it's really just the beginning, but I guess that's how it always kind of is. How do how, For people to find you, uh, we'll put a link in it, but we'll uh, just share it here. What's the, the best way for people to... Yeah, so my wife, Erin, and I have a website, embodimentmatters.com, and that's where we have our, our podcast and different kinds of live and online classes, and you know, we have some grief rituals coming up. One, actually, it's going to be in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and one is going to be in Salt Lake City. Uh, Boulder's going to be in May. Salt Lake City will be in September, and uh, yeah, different classes and meditations on there. Carl, thanks. Thanks for, for yeah, finally getting this to happen. And, and again, hopefully we'll get a call at, at some other point, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm glad to, we've been in so many text dialogues. I'm glad to actually have this person to person. It's been really uh, great for me. Yeah. Me as well, Andrew and Nikki, it was wonderful to meet you and be fun to talk again. Cause like guys, maybe- this was fun. Have a great day out there, Carl, and we'll we'll see you on the interwebs. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Carl at embodimentmatters.com slash about-carl. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps others find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching into Presence. Bye for now.